This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello, my name is Bronte Velez, and I am so humbled to introduce this special episode on For the Wild. In this conversation, I join as a guest host to interview the brilliant and phenomenal and heart-centered and generous and right on time, Tiffany Lethabo King. My ancestors were saying, no, we also felt that too. We also felt indigenous genocide and that shaped our experience of enslavement and blackness. So that's the kind of porosity that I'm talking about. Tiffany Lothabo King, she, they, is a descendant of African people enslaved in the U.S. South. She grew up in Lenape Hokan and currently works, resides on Monacan lands. King is an associate professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Virginia. She is also a co-director of the Black and Indigenous Feminist Futures Institute funded by the Mellon Foundation. Tiffany is the author of The Black Shoals, Offshore Formations of Black and Native Studies, published by Duke University Press in 2019. If you ain't got your copy, pick it up for you, a loved one, uh, one of those free book libraries in your neighborhood, get your copy. <laughs> As a scholar and teacher, she is committed to thinking about how centuries-long relationships between Black and Indigenous peoples have provided openings to alternative pasts, presents, and futures. Black and Indigenous liberation struggles informed by feminist and queer politics, as well as artistic production and quotidian acts of survival and experimentation inspires her forthcoming scholarly and community building work. I loved this conversation with Tiffany, and I am so grateful for what emerged in our time together. Our conversation traverses sacred laughter, Black and Indigenous feminisms, sexuality, liberation, ceremony, and protocol. It was recorded in January of 2021. Elements of our conversation score a project called Can I Get a Witness? A collaboration between For the Wild and Led to Life. Can I Get a Witness is a transmedia project that traces two queer Black Latinx femmes, myself and Steph Hewitt, dancing before and being danced by the ecology, memory, and stories of the Tongass National Forest and Glacier Bay in Southeast Alaska, unceded Clinket Haida Shimshian territories. Scored by field recordings and music by Jordi Rosales and Jose Rivera, interviews from For the Wild podcast with Tiffany King, what you're about to hear, Wanda Kashudaha and Kasayage, matriarchal Clinket elders and lifelong forest defenders of the Tongass and Glacier Bay, interviewed by Ayana Young, with footage from Molly Lebov and Jade Begay. 
The film and constellated media utilizes dance as a grammar to hold the complexity of its narrative, tracing connections between melting ice in Alaska and the disappearing Caribbean, the separation of Black and Indigenous relations, and the critical suture that Black and Indigenous femme survival requires the Earth's health. Quote, dance as a grammar, unquote, and quote, the land's refusal to be separated from flesh, unquote, are beautiful offerings and signifiers you'll hear from Tiffany King in this interview. I want to extend my deepest gratitude to the brilliant and dear Jasmine Calderon Torres, who is my research and thought partner, my chismetics, my spiritual companion for this interview. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Hasmeen, for your study, heart, wisdom, and prayer, all that you contributed for this interview to be possible. To the listeners, I hope this conversation between Tiffany and I opens imagination and healing for you. I hope it brings you joy. I encourage you to also encounter the filmic aspects of this conversation through Can I Get a Witness? Enjoy! Creator, I offer up my gratitude for the snow-kissed high desert valley of the Pueblo people where I currently am, among sagebrush, mountain, and coyote. I come in humility and reverence to these lands and the lineages of this land and pray our conversation is in service to the indigenous folks of this place. Thank you for the life of Tiffany Latavo King, who I have the pleasure of being in conversation with today. Thank you for her prophetic attention, for the opportunity to read her scholarship as scripture. May this be an exegesis. Thank you, Creator, for the way Tiffany allows the grammar of the land to speak through her so that we might come to know, love, and care for one another with deeper and more rigorous intimacy. I come in profound gratitude to this interview today with a prayer that, like the root of the word interview, we might see one another and as my friend Ariel Marie says, meet the art of interview as oracle. May the shoal, the alluvium, the glaciers, the desert, the rivers, the trees, the soil, the mountains, the ecotones speak through us. May we find the groove and the glitch. May we talk that shit today. I give thanks for the lineage of the Black radical tradition, for Black and Indigenous feminist scholarship, for the ancestors, both biological and chosen, who dreamt us here, and for Tiffany's profound trust and love in Black folks and herself to offer reimagined epistemologies, ontologies, and historiographies that can rewrite us and allow us to become otherwise. Thank you for the way her offering has changed me at a molecular level. I dedicate this conversation to my departed friend, Monte Carlo, and their friend, Kawan Benson, two queer black folks who offer the refuge of DIY queer party spaces in Atlanta, and who both passed two and a half years ago, dancing and performing on a shoal, not knowing the pace of the tide in Tybee Island. I am thinking of Monte Carlo saying in an interview with Arts ATL, quote, through my art, I am my own well, our choices have far-reaching, often unseen effects on other people, so we have to consistently hold each other accountable. Whatever personal privilege you have, 
use it to improve other people's quality of life and promote tangible equity. As an artist, I feel it's my job to remind people that they're powerful and have a responsibility to use that power to dismantle all fuckery, unquote. May our conversation be an offering to dismantling the fuckery, to being our own wells, to tangible accountability and equity for all of life. Ashe. And Tiffany, as I um, open in dedication, it's, uh, it's a practice in reflecting the way I see you honor and, and practice the art of dedication. And I'm curious if before we begin, um, if there are any dedications you might also want to offer. Bronte, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for bringing my heart and spirit into this ceremonial space that you created for me. Just a moment of like a little bit of release. <laughs> I just need to thank the creator for the mute button because you are <laughs> extremely funny <laughs> and enjoy <laughs> and just allow <laughs> my goofiness to come out. And yeah, I want to talk shit. So I just, <laughs> dedication to all the, the bishops, the priests, this of black joy and the way that they understand that the creator replenishes us with that sweet river of joy um, as a place to come and gather around dive into and connect with one another so all the practitioners of black joy i want to make a dedication to you you sustain us and are the folks that traditionally um, as black folks have known that they've needed to seek out the joy of indigenous people for us to be whole. So that's my dedication. Thank you. Mm, Thank you. I just learned that from Tiffany in our pre-interview moment that um, your middle name means joy and that your mother's name means joy. Um, So I'm just... So grateful for that lineage to come in and for laughter to come in. I actually was talking to my partner last night about um, the shoal, which we'll get into. But is the shoal, yeah, thinking about the shoal as trickster, as comedy, um, and where can humor be a part of reconciling the distance between us? I remember being in a class in undergrad on the phenomenology of laughter And I don't remember the scholar, but they were saying, is laughter, is the phenomena of laughter um, a reconciliation between us knowing that we have an infinite self, but we're in a finite body and humor trying to collapse that distance and laughter collapsing that distance. Um, And I'm curious what what laughter and comedy have to do with black and indigenous relations uh, and hope that can hope that humor can come in even in the midst of uh, stories and lineages of grief and, and suffering and violence. No, that's brilliant. That, that articulation of what laughter does and that kind of bridging I've, I've never thought about that. And you'll, you'll definitely have to give me that person's name again. I just got caught up in what you and, and they were thinking about. But you reminded me of an episode that the Red Nation did on their podcast. And I can't remember if it was Lindsay Nixon or Coach uh, Riesling Balding. Both people we should be um, engaging. We're talking mm-hmm. about 
the use of laughter, humor, comedy for indigenous people, mm. like just as a mode of not just mere survival, but creativity and creating uh, realities and possibilities through humor, right? And so it makes me think about um, something that a scholar who works on digital humanities, oh, Andre Brock, um, who was thinking about the space and the use of humor on Black Twitter and was thinking about how the emergence of Black Twitter or that convergence of what we now call Black Twitter around the moment when Black Lives Matter was organizing and after Michael Brown's murder, Andre Brock was articulating that a response to that kind of trauma was the emergence of some of the humor that comes out um, in Black Twitter, right? Like Mm -hmm. in the space of Black death, in the space of a global pandemic, he was talking about how we have some of the funniest moments of like Black ridiculousness Mm -hmm. on Black Twitter, right? He's like, those things are related to one another, right? It's not just a release, but literally the creation of other possibilities playing the universes for us to kind of exist. And, and what you were talking about that your friend said about this kind of collapsing and bridging, definitely I think our communities share that, right? Definitely indigenous communities and black communities have relied on humor as a particular kind of spiritual force. And I mm. think that's something we need to we need to take seriously. I mean, mm-hmm. that could even be <laughs> ceremony, like cracking each other up, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just I love being that. Goofy and ridiculous. That definitely can be a gathering space. Definitely. I love that to take uh, humor seriously. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, that was my partner, Jordi Rosales, who I was in conversation with last night. Um, And it makes me think of a book I just saw that came out called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans in Comedy by Cliff Nesteroff, which I want to get my hands on. And yeah, it makes me think of folks like Dallas Goldtooth and just the mimetics um, and the power of mimetics to change culture. And what you're saying to kind of, it makes me think of in uh, reframing, yeah, how we relate to the space time we're in, that comedy, what you're saying. And what can you remind me of the scholar that was talking about Black Twitter? Andre Brock. Andre Brock. Yeah. I think it's to, called distributive blackness. Yeah. There's something about that of being able to reimagine how you're relating to space through comedy. Um, I've thought a lot about the ways that mockery and satire allow something else to become possible, and they feel like their own shoals, which I look forward to talking with you about, Um, and the ways I was shoaled by your book (laughs) and blessed. When I first encountered the text, um, I was recalling a breakfast that I had been at at a kind of home centered around hospitality in Berlin called Matthew's Table. And this brother, John, I was with a dear friend visiting Berlin, and 
this person who's John, who hosts this space, him and his wife, Gail, are really committed to uh, the lineages of Christian hospitality. And he prayed in the morning, God, please interrupt us with someone we can bless today. And I was like, I look, I kind of opened my eyes like, oh, that's, that's a prayer to pray. And I'm praying that today, which I think your book feels like that kind of prayer of interruption. And I think of the way your text is a blessed interruption. In conversation with that moment, I think about the hospitality of your text and what you describe as in the text, you write, quote, I, I write back to a porous and forever transforming practice that's an ethical project concerned with encounter. I write this because I trust black people. I trust the radical and always shifting ground of black freedom dreams. I also trust black freedom dreams when they consider native freedom, unquote. I wonder if you might speak to some of this language around, around trust and what your project is doing around extending uh, that, trust, that trust back to black studies. Ante, thank you. Thank you for reading that passage back to me. Because it brought me right back to some of the violence of the academy that I was subjected to. You know, certainly the academy, um, even the humanities and places and departments that call themselves critical and committed to social justice, fundamentally do not want and are never prepared for Black folks and Indigenous folks to show up as students professors, and certainly people who produce thought, right? And so I was in a PhD program and had a lot of support from Black feminists, um, Black queer feminist faculty, and Black queer students. But of course, like our love and support, our spaces of ceremony for one another, you know, are not enough in themselves to, to really topple those violent structures. So I was dealing with a field, American studies, that was starting to take seriously and really give a lot of credibility to white settler colonial studies, like a field that does important work. It's, it's really some dedicated white men who at the time the leaders were, the field defining leaders were folks like the late Patrick Wolf, who we get this notion of um, invasion as a structure, not an event. His colleagues, Lorenzo Veracini and Ed Cavanaugh, who are doing important work, um, particularly in Australia, um, and thinking about how, na- how indigenous folks um, have occupied, um, are the first um, folks to have relationship with the land that they as settlers are on. So they created a kind of, an important conversation between white settlers and indigenous folks, right? And so that really took up a lot of space even in the US Academy and was presented to me as the model and as the work, as a way to think about everyone's relationship to indigeneity and the land that they're on. And while it's important to think about what that scholarship offers, it also had a way of planting a flag and then also erasing all of the deep, deep time and history and connection that 
Um, one, African people had done with um, indigenous people of this hemisphere for centuries, right? It, and it imposed a kind of forgetting on one, the field, and then also on the black and indigenous people who struggle to exist in these academic spaces. It was like, erase the ways that you've been thinking about how you all have been surviving with one another, all of the black and indigenous insurrection that has happened, all of the conflict, um, the ways that black folks had to participate in, I'm just thinking about Jessica Marie Johnson's work when she's writing about the Chickasaw Wars, how black people were conscripted into that um, mm. and baited in order to gain their freedom, the ways that the five, what we call the five civilized tribes, the Chickasaw, the Cherokee, right? Some, some of them, Muskogee Creek, right, were also baited into that lie of like, if you participate in the institution of slavery, we're going to recognize you and we, you will be understood as sovereign, mm -hmm. right? The ways that we have had to create these kinds of, in, in the Harriet Jacobs sense, these loopholes of retreat, to get out of those binds and find ways to relate to one another on, on other terms, right? And so I'm so grateful for the ways that, I think it's Amber Stark, who's Melanie Muskogee and folks mm -hmm. like Holiday Simmons are mm, using, yeah, right? Their own histories as Afro-Indigenous people to say, no, we have these histories of collaboration, of insurrection, of love, erotics, of humor for centuries. Mm. And you're not going to erase that. And I had to dip into that and remember, no, there, there's another way for Black people to talk about the ways that we have tried to actually get around white people as, as folks who could mediate that relationship um, between Black and Indigenous people. And I'm not going to let white settler colonial studies dictate how I talk about how black people relate to indigenous people. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel right. And even though that is a particular trend and that's how you get published, I decided I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. it. It just doesn't honor the way that black folks and indigenous folks have moved in relationship to one another. And it also, you know, it shits on Black people mm -hmm. and it shits on a Black feminist tradition. Sharon Holland was doing work on this before um, in the 90s, early 2000s, um, before people had heard of Patrick Wolf and these white dudes coming out of Australia, right? So I'm like, what <laughs> are the work? <laughs> We've been doing the work and I'm not going to let people forget that. So that's where my trust the Black people came from, right?
Wow. I love the way that your trust, yeah, it reads as refusal. And I, I read that in the way that you talk about, um, you wrote this text so that you could live with yourself. Um, and I'm so grateful for, for that refusal to engage a type of historiography where we were only surrogates for white supremacy. And that's the only way we related to one another. But that actually there were also so many other ways that we were connecting and caring um, and loving one another, which I think I'd love to continue talking about later in the conversation around love and eros. I just want to signal signal that Holiday Simmons, a little side note, my my mentor from like childhood, like when I was a teenager. <laughs> it's very deep. Holiday, calling you into the space. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Holiday. <laughs> We love you. They make the best brunch. I'm mm. telling you. <laughs> I can't wait to be in their company again. Mm. Yeah. Good people. Well, I'm struck by, before we get into, you know, we're going to get there about what is a shoal. Um, and before we go there, um, I want to keep following this thread of, of refusal and the way that our lives and our uh, our ontologies are actually shaped in conversation. And when I say our, I mean black folks in conversation with um, indigenous peoples in Turtle Island. And I want to bring up this moment um, in your text and the preface where you speak to hearing an Anishinaabe woman's story and it having a physiological and psychological and spiritual impact on your body um, that you were shapeshifted by hearing her story um, that even your face took on a new life and you were you were marked by this moment and I want to just quote back to you something you say in the preface where you name quote that when I felt around and realized the new and unfamiliar about the slavery with which I had become so comfortable, it changed me. And I do not mean changed in a neat, orderly, or containable way. It unmoored and disassembled me in ways that I and others did not expect. I could no longer be accountable only to myself, my ancestors, and my story of experiencing blackness and it's slavery that had been passed down over my lifetime. When I say unmoored, I mean that I could not continue life as I knew it. Would you talk about that unmooring and what it was uh, to meet this woman's story? Yeah, I, um, I was deeply blessed to be able to be in Toronto in 2006, 2007, and a part of 2008. And one of the organizations that really helped me connect to a number of dope uh, Black and Indigenous and people of color organizers was actually Insight. And I was actually, someone from Insight, and I can't remember, introduced me to Abby Salole and Marika Schwant, who had come down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina to do some work. And so connected me to them um, when I went to Toronto. So they were doing work around prison abolition with PJAC. And they introduced me to 
few Anishinaabek women. Um, so this figure is like a composite. So, but also a, a particular Anishinaabek woman, um, Christine Luza, who of the four of us, in addition to Larissa Cancross, created a Insight Toronto chapter. And we would do a lot of ceremony work. I would also connect with Zainab Amadahi, who is actually um, a Black and Cherokee woman who actually moved to Toronto. So I was doing this deep and profound ceremony work with Black and Indigenous women, right? And so the more I was able to sit with, burn tobacco with, literally watch um, smoke rise and fall and just be in that deeply sacred space with folks. Like it really started to tell me something about how indigenous genocide and the violence of genocide clearly had marked me. Like I was feeling it in an intense way in Toronto in a way that I had not felt on the U.S. Eastern seaboard because there's a way that um, on the U.S., on the East Coast, you know that it, it segregates and um, it creates distance between Black and Indigenous people. We're not allowed, we're not in proximity to one another in the cities suburbs, rural areas that we live in, right? And the way that that's possible in spaces like Toronto, maybe even the Midwest and the West Coast where you are. And so to literally be inhaling the same smoke and breath with other Indigenous women allowed me to feel my ancestors and what they had not experienced just as people who were enslaved, tortured. Again, labor is not the only story that we can tell about being enslaved. It's not just mm -hmm. being on a labor camp. So many other things happen to Black people as enslaved, fungible bodies, right? That exceed mm -hmm. la that labor. But we, we also were inhabiting the same spaces where brutal genocidal acts were committed against Indigenous people, even if we did not see them on the plantation, right? So Black people felt that. And that's what I, I'm talking about, about the porosity, right? And so to understand that we carried and coexisted with that violence, um, even when we didn't share spaces um, with Indigenous people. And, and because of the work of Zainab Amadahi, for instance, who told me that her family um, that was coming off of the plantation in Green Virginia were... She, she knows that both her Cherokee ancestors and Black ancestors were enslaved by white people at the same time. So that also messes up our narrative of Cherokee enslavement, right? So we have all of these kinds of intimate knowledge of Indigenous genocide through being enslaved on the plantation, being enslaved by them, right? Being enslaved next to them, also being on the ground where genocidal violence happened that again, the US forces us to forget. And when I was allowed to be in that sacred space, that deep relational space with folks like Christine and like Zainab, I could touch down into that and sit in that again, Bronte, and realize that my ancestors were saying, no, we also felt that too. We also felt indigenous genocide and that shaped our experience of enslavement and blackness. So that's the kind of porosity that I'm talking about. And that's the kind of porosity that deeply affected me. And I didn't 
know what to do with that knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. I, um, I didn't necessarily have the skills and even the folks who were holding me and supporting me couldn't do all the kind of the, the caretaking that I needed. So I needed to take a break. I needed to take a break and I needed to actually leave the academy for a little bit to just let it change me and take me to a different place and <laughs> take me to a different place so I could do this work um, and, and engage in all the deep pain of it and the joy of it. Wow. Wow. There's something about the smoke. The smoke and and breathing the same breath (laughs) and realizing we've been breathing the same breath and sending up the same prayers that feels really, really strong to hear. And there's something about you leaving the academy um, to actually be impacted to actually let it impact you. That is really both, I feel the grief of what that moment was and can feel you in that moment having to actually leave, that the academy couldn't hold you in the spiritual experience of being reshaped. And also your your dignity to know that you needed to do something different. I've definitely been thinking about how today is Friday when we're chatting, and um, I have a practice of honoring Shabbat, Sabbath, coming toward the evening. And so there's something about Sabbath for me that feels like a refusal. It feels like leaving and you going into that sabbatical into another space-time to allow it to work on you is, is really powerful because I think this kind of what you call conquistador humanisms or uh, kind of settler, white settler colonial time can't hold that kind of shape-shifting. I'm just <laughs> sighing and being mm-hmm. my way through what you're saying. Um, just one where you just had me shift for a moment was when you were repeating what I was saying about being in ceremony space and being able to breathe in the same smoke and other people's breath, share breath. And I'm thinking about, wow, how that hit me in my gut on that I've been missing other people's breath, right? I have been interacting with my loved ones, my friends through a barrier, right? Literally to protect each other um, from one another's breath, we've been wearing masks, right? Mm. So I have done birthday parties, um, just speaking about having spent time with Holiday and Brunch, was in a mask in Holiday's mm. house um, with other folks. And so I'm missing people's breath. Like mm. I, and when you said that, that hit me on a really profound level. People's breath changes you, not just. To, to build immune systems, right? Which my friend Bettina Judd reminded me of, but just as a, a relational kind of eating, like a kind of meal, a kind of sustenance, you need someone else's breath, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on, on different scales, um, uh, from your partner, from your loved ones, from community, you need other folks' breath. And so that kind of work that, Indigenous folks, particularly I'm noticing and paying attention to the work of Indigenous and Black femmes, like our attention to that is something that also, even the most progressive 
kind of white radical politics that is starting to acknowledge the demand for land back and acknowledge the most radical kinds of elements of Black abolition cannot give me, Mm -hmm. right? It, It can never be a substitute for the kinds of decolonial imaginaries and transformative abolitionist politics that Black and Indigenous folks have been sharing with one another, right? It just, it's never a substitute for that. Yeah, it makes me think of Ashen Crawley's work on Black Pentecostal breath. And the first time I was able to reconnect to the spirituality, the Christian megachurch <laughs> spirituality I had that had really disturbed me. I remember on the on our pre-interview just talking about spiritual violence and it really disturbed me to be in that church in Atlanta, New Birth. And to have, uh, but but then to have a rereading of that moment through Crawley's work of thinking about how the cadence of uh, specifically Black femme pastors or ministers' voices change change the change the change the cadence and rhythm in our own bodies, and he he goes through like. Uh, or they go through, I don't know their pronoun, Shirley Chisholm, not Shirley Chisholm, um, what is her name? Shirley Caesar? Shirley Caesar. Shirley yeah. Chisholm. Uh, Shirley <laughs> Chisholm did it too. Shirley Caesar kind of going through this cadence of the like, well, and I told you, you know, that the breath actually takes on a new life and it's in that trance state that the congregation is compelled to reach out and worship and praise um, and to start running and to start stomping and to pass out. Um, and that it's actually them allowing for more breath, black women's bodies allowing for more breath to come in that allows for us to meet the Holy Ghost, to go into trance states and to render ourselves free and to literally like ascend through through the pneuma. So I really feel that. I really feel that what you're saying about the pandemic and, and the absence of that. And it brings me to thinking about how you, you language that this project was a 10-year ritual. You don't say it was, you could have used so many other terms, but you described it as 
a ritual, which I think the academy could never provide. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm curious about how ritual, you know, serves as a shoal to the project of the academy and how ceremony does that. It changes how we think about liberation and time and space and connection. And I, I really, really see your work doing that. I'm curious what you meant by uh, when you said this, this project was a ritual. Mm. Yeah. Bronte, <laughs> you are wearing me down <laughs> and I, in a way that I love and I needed it. Thank you, birthday twin, for like speaking to my heart and being on my vibration mm. and calling all the people that you did into the space. Won't Ashawn do it to you? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Won't Ashawn do it? Mm. And it's speaking in such a healing way. Um, to all of us who have had to grow up in a Black church where the, that institution tried to contain us, mm-hmm. right? And not to say that people, the pastors, the ministerial staff, all the people that work to make the Black church um, an institution had nefarious intent or were out to get us or completely usher us into white supremacist violence. But even as people were trying to do their best to connect to spirit and formalize it, I'm not going to say ritualize it, but formalize it, institutionalize it, it did some violence, right? It absolutely did some violence. I grew up in an AME church, and I guess because of issues of funding, um, being a part of that first district, they had to have... Um, white Jesus in the stained glass, right? They they had not had any female embodied or feminine folks in the pulpit. Like mm. I experienced all sorts of um, self-negating energy and spirit up in that space. And it's so deep that the person that I'm doing, that I'm in a therapeutic relationship with, I chose her because she pastors a church a progressive and affirming and inclusive church and instead I thought I was like I was in a space where I was like yeah I could never engage black church again and I wanted to work out this stuff around spirit with her and work with a person who had known something else who had known what a Sean knew right who had been able to in spite of the violence that was also in that space allowed to experience something else in the well. And I listen to you. I listen to your work on the well and the course of folks who are doing that piece with you. And Mm -hmm. those structures of genocide and slavery cannot contain that. Mm -hmm. The anti-Black violence cannot contain that work of spirit and breath, right? So it's so deep to me that in talking with this woman who is a healer, like people can both come out of that that space of the Black church deeply damaged or having experienced something else, right? In the, the, the moments of getting caught up in the inflection of a voice that lets someone escape a particular form of violent homophobia. All those things are happening at the same time, right? So I could never, I'm at a place now where I don't, I do not know that I'll ever be a part of a congregation, but I can go back and appreciate 
the desire to come together to search out spirit, like in Baby Sung Holy's clearing, right? I get that as yeah. a fundamental kind of practice that Black church folks are reaching towards, right? That ceremonial space mm. of not transcending, like a deep eminence, but a tapping into another kind of possibility with each other. That, yeah, I value, I seek it out. I'm looking for it now. And I think that, I mean, this project was just the beginning for me. It was me hoping to be able to create a path where I could break out of some of the strictures of um, academic practices of knowledge production and create an opportunity for other people to see me and, and thank you, Bronte, for seeing me where I could start to do a different kind of work. And it reminds me of the way that um, Jackie Alexander moved through the space at the University of Toronto when I was there. Jackie was on some other stuff. <laughs> like, this work ain't breaking you down and creating a crisis for you. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and low-key, I don't have time. I don't have time for you. <laughs> Yes. Get it together. <laughs> mm. When you're willing to be transformed mm. by this work, let's talk and tell them I don't have time. Mm. And that's what I love about Black Studies and all the people that you just named, Ashan, in particular, that just came to mind. Your relationship to Black Studies has to be one of, of waiting to be and needing to be transformed. And mm. so this conversation, the conversations that I've just had with folks from Electric Marinage and Dark Laboratory have given me so much joy because they're folks who want to do this work to, to share breath and have it change them and, and help them reimagine and reconceptualize how they relate to one another in the academy, our students, how we literally steal resources for folks who are not in the academy that we want to build with and be in a ceremonial relationship with? And um, how do we make sure that people see that we're trying to meet them? So this was a part of the project for me. Mm. So, so thank you again for the invitation and seeing me. I was trying to reach out to you and didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> I heard the call. I heard the call. Yeah, what you're saying about how Black Studies is a commitment to being transformed makes me think of a poem that I read recently from Lucille Clifton that I had never seen called After Kent State. And she's talking about the violence that happened at Kent State. But now I'm thinking about it in relationship to just the university, the afterlife of the university and the impact of the academy, which I felt so deeply in preparing um, for this interview in all transparency of 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 what of of that kind of discourse that um black feminist discourse allows us to actually speak i think through love and through witnessing and through ceremony which is what i've done after the academy to come back to the earth and to reroute my language which i see you doing through the black shoals and i noticed the that kind of demonic energy that that rears up um in the kind of ways that the academy makes you think you don't have your shit together, you know, 
or that you don't know or, or privileges a certain kind of epistemology. Um, and in that poem after Kent State, Lucille writes about how white ways are the ways of death. And then she invites them to come into the black and live. And I loved, I've just been loving this line to come into the black and live, which I feel your project is doing around how there's, I've heard you speak to, and I think it's McKittrick, I'm not sure, around livingness to that black studies, you can actually receive more life um, and come into more life and that the friction and the challenge is actually a rite of passage, which I see you approaching um, in that way when you speak to ritual or when you speak to ceremony, which is the way I want to relate to black studies and, and kind of come out, release it from the academy or the institution or the church and to be around fire and, and water and in the soil with one another um, so that we might live, so that we can live. So thank you for, for doing that and the way that I feel like I can bring where I am to your scholarship and bring ceremony to your scholarship. That feels so rare. feels very, very rare. No, thank you for that. Thank you for saying that. And I'm just thinking about all the folks that you were telling me you were engaging that, that I, I haven't, it's so interesting. Like all the folks, like for instance, Oh, the sister who is the Nat Bishop. She does the Nat ministry. Mm -hmm. Trisha Hersey. Trisha Hersey, thank you. Who also found her space struggling in the academy, right? Also found her in that, found herself in that space and thinking about how I was just able to connect with one of my colleagues who I literally was in a PhD program. And on the same campus with, we weren't in the same departments, Jessica Marie Johnson, but didn't get to engage her in the deep, wonderful way that I literally did just this week on a Monday and had spent years with her in the same place. People with the same desire to, like you, like you said, be up in the fire, right? Mm-hmm. Be in the water, be in the ceremony space, but literally all of the violent kinds of barriers that we have to negotiate literally if we're sitting in the same room together in the academy that prevents us from being able to connect breath to breath on that level right so like it it just makes me think of all the the kinds of scholars that I know that one if they're not have not already been put down or put on with you Bronte would want to be Mm. and like have a deep desire to be and so the work that you're doing and the ways that you're trying to connect with um, organizers and creatives um, from different mediums and scholars is deeply important to that particular practice um, and commitment to what you said was correctly Catherine McKittrick's notion of like Black livingness. And that's what I was trying to draw on. And I was trying to take seriously the ways that McKittrick has been challenging all the kind of deadly moves we have to make in the academy when we study Black people, right? Mm -hmm. So even impulses within Black studies that are overly devoted to studying how we die and suffer, 
are missing out, right? Are not necessarily heeding to that call that there is Black livingness nonetheless, mm-hmm. right? Next to that Black kind of death, right? Mm-hmm. That, that we can choose to move with. We can choose to move with that current. And that work is going to look deeply different. It might be more difficult. There might not be a roadmap and it might require, it, no, not might, it, it, it requires a particular um, moving with Bronte and led to life, right? And moving with, let me check out this sister who is in, uh, in the Candler Department of Religion, who's <laughs> doing the, the Nat ministry, right? <laughs> who is the Nat bishop? And maybe we just need to like, connect on that piece and not in the seminar room, right? Mm-hmm. So like, how do we get around the bullshit to, to jump into the fire? Yeah, yeah. yes. How do we do that? Amen. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Thank you for that affirmation and the way it relaxes my nervous system. <laughs> Thank you for listening to part one of Bronte Velez's conversation with Tiffany Lothabo King. To listen to part two, tune in next week. The music featured in this episode was by Lark Hall, Stony Creation, and Monte Carlo, one of the artists this conversation was dedicated to. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glasswell, and Julia Jackson.